Tonight's gospel reading is from the book of Matthew, chapter 3, verses 1 to 12. Now in those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. For this is the one referred to by Isaiah the prophet when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Make ready the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Now John himself had a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem was going out to him, and all Judea, and all the district around the Jordan. And they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River as they confessed their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming for baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore, bear fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not suppose that you can say to yourselves, We have Abraham for our father. For I say to you that from these stones, God is able to raise up children to Abraham. The axe is already laid at the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. As for me, I baptize you with water for repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, and I am not fit to remove his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand and he will thoroughly clear his threshing floor, and he will gather his wheat into the barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. The word of the Lord. if you noticed, and I kind of doubt that it's very important, but there are a lot of animals in the text for tonight. Camels, skin, locusts, vipers, wolves, lambs, leopards, calves, lions, cows, ox, asp, worm. It's like a zoo. And though I have to admit it probably wasn't particularly theologically fruitful to read all of Matthew looking for animal references, it seemed more compelling than trying to find something interesting about John the Baptist for the 13th millionth time. Matthew talks about animals more than you might expect. Really, there's probably not a chapter where you don't find an animal. I especially like it where he talks about straining out gnats and swallowing camels. I always thought I didn't like Matthew. He's so prone to hyperbole. But I like a guy who talks about swallowing a camel. I like anybody who just says swallowing a camel. It's hilarious. But so, yeah, I was thinking a lot about animals. And you know the manger scene has a lot of animals. It's a barn. But so I was just wondering if... Generally, there were a lot of animals in first century Palestine, and did they have, like, zoos? And luckily, I didn't spend a whole lot of time researching that. But it made me think of a story, or maybe it was an episode in Rome, or Julius Caesar, or maybe it was Mark Antony, really wanted some giraffes. I don't know why. But the giraffes kept dying on the boat on the way over from Africa. So I tried to look up that story on the internet and I couldn't find it, but the search I was doing, animals in the Roman Empire, 
I know you're thinking, we're paying her for this? <laughs> Got me about five million hits. Mostly all about the Roman games. The brutal, bloody, and horrific games played by the most powerful empire in the world, which were in full swing, I realized, when John the Baptist was coming on the scene calling the Pharisees and Sadducees a brood of vipers, like they're Voldemort or something, when really, they're not. They're this relatively powerless group of Jewish religious leaders, so small and unarmed and weak and little vassals of the Roman Empire, Rome, armor, Caesars, unrelenting cruelty. They were the power that controlled and defined the world. And this itty-bitty little powerless group of people who were all sort of grappling for some semblance of something, identity, something to form around, are Voldemort? The rabbis? John's mad at them? Calls down the fire on the Pharisees? I mean, you look at history, and you just kind of want to take John's little stubbly, locusty face in your hands and say, look, honey, they are not the enemy. What is your problem? They aren't even bad. Okay, slap him maybe a little. John's railing against his brothers in Judaism. And what's the Roman Empire up to? I mean, OMG. Enslaving hundreds of thousands of people, raping, pillaging, sadism, brutality, callousness were seen as virtues. There was certainly no notion of mercy as a good thing. It was a bad thing, shameful. So about the time that Matthew or whoever is writing his book, the Romans are building the Colosseum for the games which were getting huger and huger. They started out as a thing that families would do at funerals, like, I don't know, 200 BC. So the families would gather at their ancestral tombs and they would mourn and they would watch two slaves fight to the death. Their blood supposedly appeased the dead. Cicero, who loves his empire, explains that they found comfort in death by murder. People liked the comfort they found in watching people die. So Julius Caesar figured out how to skip the whole funeral thing and make the games bigger and bigger and bigger, big, huge public affairs. And so it got to that power and political success depended on a politician's ability to entertain the masses with these games. So here's where the animals come in again. It became a huge thing for the politicians to outdo each other with more and more exotic and lavish displays. So they tried to find all the wildest animals they could. Buffaloes and hippopotamuses and lions and tigers and hyenas and crocodiles, snakes. The, the list is staggering. And they'd ship them long distance across the sea, not to be exhibited really, but to be killed. So yeah, about the time Matthew a man subject to Roman rule, was writing about John the Baptist, a man subject to Roman rule. 
is yelling at the Pharisees, subject to Roman rule. Augustus Caesar is building the Colosseum. The technology involved in the Colosseum was amazing. Tunnels and elevators and these elaborate sets for like animal hunts and battle scenes. On the opening day, 5,000 animals were killed. And the people who removed the dead animal carcasses were supposed to do it quickly and entertainingly. The shows would last an entire day. First show, the animals were hunted. Next show, the animals would do the hunting. But it was sometimes hard to get the animals to attack the humans. So they would attach bloody meat to the victims. Next, the criminals were punished for the crowd's pleasure. Officially, there were three forms of punishment for crimes in the arena. Crucifixion, burning, and being torn apart by wild animals. Crucifixion was too slow and boring. And burning didn't seem to be very entertaining. So the ripping apart by wild beasts became the most popular punishment. The biggest problem for the Roman gamers was coming with more imaginative, more new, more exciting ideas. So they flooded the arena and staged mock, na not mock naval battles. Another new exciting idea, they pitted women gladiators against dwarves and against captured children. Another new imaginative idea, Blind people were armed and made to fight each other. So, I don't know. I mean, legalism is a drag. Hypocrisy is unbecoming. And, oh no, the rabbis presume to say Abraham is their father? But the empire is slaughtering life for entertainment. Maybe... John's anger is a little misdirected? Who was causing the suffering in the world for the Jewish people? I don't really think it was the rabbis. These texts, our gospels, are written by people in a time when the Romans ruled their land. The Romans. Caligula, Nero, throwing spawn lovers off a cliff, kicking his pregnant wife to death and murdering his mother's gladiators. I don't know if we can hear the Gospels very well, if we aren't all the time thinking about the empire, thinking of the pervasive imperial context in which they were written. And when we forget to pay attention to that, I think it might contribute to a sort of insipid quality in the church. Olivia was just asking what that word meant, and since then I've been using it a lot. Probably too much. But I think it sort of fits here. Have you ever shaken someone's hand and felt like a mushy and it felt like a mushy head of wilted lettuce? Insipid wines apparently are like that. I'm not saying the church is cloyingly sweet, sentimental, dull, bland, flavorless, vapid. I'm not saying the church is like a mushy head of wilted lettuce. I'm just going to try to channel John the Baptist a little bit. 
We've gotten to the place where the gap between rich and poor in America is larger than it's been since the robber barons. Corporations are funding our elections. Less than 1% of the people control 42% of the wealth in America. Boys call themselves gamers. I know we don't have emperors. We have corporations. Most of the populace were merely sources of revenue for the elite in Matthew's day. Most of the populace is merely a source of revenue for the corporations in our day. Some Christian group that's trying to reclaim the roots of Christmas by trying to get people to not buy so much at Christmas is selling their step-by-step guide, the book and the DVD. How do you get people to not buy things by selling them something? It seems so thick. We need fire, maybe. We need a worm to attack the plant so that it will wither and die. We should all hope for some small force of destruction. Churches debate about whether or not you should start playing Christmas music in Advent. Who should serve communion, infant baptism? You know, when the empire is out there slaughtering souls and enslaving the masses to corporate power. The church sidles up to capitalism like a lover. What's the problem? You need to carve out your niche in the marketplace. You need to learn how to boot up your machines. You need to communicate in the language of empire if you're going to maintain a place in the system. As if the only way the church can survive is to learn to draw blood from the empire's veins. Did we learn that attitude from our text somehow? From our sacred scripture? Like, the problem isn't the empire? It's whether or not you play Christmas music at Advent? It's whether or not you ordain people who love people of the same gender. It's all what kind of hymns you play and what kind of presents you have on the internet. It's important to get your forms in on time and to make sure you mark anything that you put in the refrigerator. Or someone's going to be mad. I don't really think that's where John the Baptist was going. I don't know about his decisions to call the Pharisees snakes. But he's not the kind of guy that would sidle up to capitalism. They wouldn't let him in the store. Maybe he called people snakes a lot. Maybe a half an hour later he called the Romans snakes and someone just forgot to write it down. He comes on the scene with a shattering force. His anger toward the religious leaders, some people say, wasn't really about their liturgical practice but because they were collaborators with the empire's regime. And if you look a little bit beyond this confrontation, the rest of John's story, he does end up taking on the empire. And the person of Herod, who embodied the empire in Judea, who Matthew portrays with all the excesses of power and brutality that was so characteristic of the Roman Empire, protecting his power by slaughtering babies. John challenges the power. He ends up challenging the empire head on, emphatically. 
and it throws him into the dungeon, and it cuts off his head, and it serves it up on a platter to a female dancer. I don't really think Christianity is insipid. John's unrelenting fire and brimstone, it's not for like little kids who don't behave. It's not for people who don't ask Jesus in their hearts. Maybe John the Baptist and Matthew's and the Gospels critique would be better read as against the empire than against, say, your personal sins or the Jews, for that matter. It's the powers that John thinks God is laying the axe to. And John's repentance isn't about whether or not we get down our knees at night and pray by our beds. He's calling us to quit collaborating with the empire now. Jesus was different than John and a lot different than what John expected, I think. John had a lot of chutzpah. As Matthew's story goes on, it looks like he might be a little bit concerned that Jesus doesn't really quite have what he has. That Jesus doesn't confront the powers, doesn't burn them down in quite the way that John would have liked or expected. Sitting in Herod's dungeon, waiting for his head to be cut off, maybe hoping for a little help, he seems to be a little disappointed in the Savior. Who isn't? It's a little hard to be sitting here like prisoners of the empire. Sure, they let us watch TV, but are we free? Come on, Jesus, where are you at? Free us. A lot of people wonder why the Roman Empire so succeeded in subjugating people. So many slaves, captives, subservient, so seemingly compliant. Some historians think that the people were so compliant because they lacked imagination to be any other way. They could not imagine a rebellion. They couldn't imagine different social structures. Couldn't imagine themselves as agents of change. What do you think? Jesus doesn't burn anything down. He clearly doesn't bring down the Roman Empire. It may not seem like enough, but maybe what he does is give birth to a holy, new, astoundingly undestructive, resoundingly creative imagination because of some knowledge or some incredible intimacy with God, the creative lover, he understood deeply the illusory and beguiling nature of the preconceptions upon which the empire depends. The utter deathliness of power and power's way. Maybe he knew that you don't bring down the power with power. One part of Matthew, the Pharisees asked Jesus if they should pay the tax to Caesar. And Jesus sort of answers sort of enigmatically, Give to Caesar what is Caesar's. Don't give Caesar your heart, your mind, or your soul, or your love. Don't get your being all entangled in the mechanisms of the machine. 
Don't take the empire into your heart or your mind or your soul. The way out of the pervasive imperial context is completely other than the way that the empire rolls. It may be that the passion of John's contempt eventually entangled him in the very delusions he was condemning. God is deconstructing power. But as it turns out, God's not doing it violently. It's hard to understand how else to do it, how to not have contempt, how to not get caught up in the very delusions we rail against. It's hard not to rail. It's hard to understand. It's impossible to grasp. It's as, it's, it's more strange to us, unfamiliar. It's more extraordinary and unexpected than a cow and a bear grazing together, than the lion lying down with a lamb than a little child able to put his hand in the brood of vipers' nests and not be poisoned. But this wine is not insipid, and this blood is not drawn from the veins of the empire. 